The resurrection changes everything, from those who are on the outside to the inside. Now, this text can be just a little bit confusing from who is going where, when, and why, because 11 is really the summary of chapters 9 and 10. So just kind of a fast forward through 9 and 10, uh, Saul has been persecuting the followers of the way in Jerusalem. Stephen has just been martyred for his faith. Then Saul was converted into the apostle. Paul went to Jerusalem and started learning this gospel from the apostles. And then Peter goes from Jerusalem to a place called Joppa. So Jerusalem was the center of the birth of the church. He starts to go to Joppa to spread this gospel out further and further to more and more Jews. Joppa is the city that we know now today as Tel Aviv. Then this next day, Peter has this vision, this strange vision of this blanket, four corners coming down, filled with food that was not kosher, refusing to eat it because it's not kosher, and God saying, what I've declared clean, who are you to say otherwise? And then he says, while, they were still, while he was still considering this vision, three men from Joppa come to get Peter, and the Holy Spirit tells to Peter, you just go with them without question. Don't make any distinction between Jew and Gentile. Just go with them. And he goes and he shares this message of the gospel with a guy named Cornelius, who's a centurion in Caesarea. And he and his whole family is changed. And in the process of Peter sharing this message, something absolutely spectacular and unexpected happens. Right? Typically, every year we celebrate Pentecost one time a year when the Holy Spirit came down on the Jews and, and massive 3,000 people were instantly converted, speaking in tongues. It was absolutely incredible, but it happened two times. As Peter is speaking to Cornelius and his family and his household, the Holy Spirit once again falls on them, not Jews, but Gentiles, never before a part of God's family or history, and they began to speak in tongues. And they are converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And John, overwhelms by this, he baptizes them all. And then he goes back to Jerusalem, the center of the church. But in his travels from Caesarea to Jerusalem, word travels faster. Can you imagine that? Word travels faster, and the church finds out that, that Peter has been just sharing the gospel willy-nilly with all these Gentile dogs, and they are not at all happy about it. And so they're questioning him. And that gets us to our text today in chapter 11, where Peter just shares what all of this that's happened. And we find out, Peter finds out very quickly that, that the church is quickly making distinctions between who should and who should not receive the gospel. And distinctions always lead to discrimination. And here's how that worked itself out. So when Peter, this is from our text today, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The circumcision party, it, it's, it's almost as if in this moment we have the very beginning of denominationalism, right? People are making distinctions between types of Christians already in the beginning of the church. Now, it's important for us to have a working understanding of circumcision, of what's actually happening. See, God changed Abram, to Abraham, from exalted father to father of multitudes. This circumcision rite is linked so incredibly closely with this promise of the Messiah. 
that in this, 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 uh, this mark of circumcision wrapped up in this act of, of, of making babies is this constant reminder that every time a baby is conceived and born, you're reminded of this messianic promise. You remember that God made this promise to send a Messiah, that he would be coming, and that he would save us all. And it was all tied to that circumcision act. But circumcision, circumcision started changing. Did you ever think you could hear circumcision so many times in a sermon? Good grief. But circumcision started becoming more and more of a work, something that people did to please God, to be in a right relationship with him. It was a work. Instead of being an act of faith that they used to remember the promise that Jesus was coming, right? Abraham, way back in the day, because of circumcision, would remember the promise of Jesus coming. And that promise, that trust in that promise was faith and faith is what was considered to him as righteousness. But as we have a chance to do over time, those things turn into rituals, which turned into habit, which turned into a work that we have to do in order to be in God's family. Instead of an act that reminded us that it's faith in that promise that has the power. So the circumcision party appealed to the mosaic, the Moses regulations, which were clear in regards to circumcision and to kosher foods. Now these regulations, they claimed, they, they condemned Peter's work in the Gentile nation as being completely and totally inappropriate and wrong. If the regulations, the mosaic regulations were indeed in place, then the only way to Christ, the only way to the church was in through the synagogue. You had to first become a Jew before you could become a Christian because that's the way we did it. That's the way it's always been done before. The church still struggles with a desire to revert back to the ways of the Pharisees, to please God by keeping the law, right? It's almost like a magnetic pull. Humanity just wants to do that, wants to be in a relationship with God based on our actions. It's like, I, I was amazed that there's this difference. I remember learning this in high school, that there's a difference between true north and magnetic north, right? True north is the north pole, the axis on which our our earth spins. That's the true north. That never changes. And then there's magnetic north, which is just a little ways away. Now, if you're from far away as we are in Florida, you pull out a compass, it's going to look like it's pointing to true north because, well, it's pretty close. But if you were to stand right next to true north, the compass would not point there. The compass would point to magnetic north, which is a little distance away. See, our, our hearts are like that compass the pointing to magnetic north. We long to please God with our works, with our actions. We long for our obedience to be the reason why God loves us. And the enemy loves that because he knows that we cannot live up to the expectations God has, that we will constantly fall short and will constantly value magnetic north but instead, he wants us to realign our compasses to the true north of the cross of repentance that leads to life. More on that in a little bit. Now, to appreciate this point uh, of, of the circumcision party, it's important to remember that up until this point in history, only Jews have been impacted by the gospel. 
Only Jews or Samaritans, which are really half-breed Jews. So it's still within God's family. Nobody outside Abraham's family has been impacted by the gospel. To them, you had to belong. You had to, you had to be a part of the family. And if you had no bloodline, if you had no Ancestry.com connection or 23andMe connection, then you were not in God's family, pure and simple. In fact, even more, you are enemies of God's family. You're not a part of the messianic promise either before or moving forward. And the thought of eating with Gentiles was repulsive because Gentiles, they cook and eat anything, right? Not the kosher food that God set apart for Israel, anything. So if you ate at a Gentile's house, the expectation is you are eating unclean food. Now, it's interesting to note when we read this text in English, uh, Peter calls it common, the food common which doesn't sound all that bad, right? Common is normal, regular, everyday. That's what we hear when we hear common. But in Greek, this word for common means vile, repulsive, disgusting. And God says, what, what I call clean, Peter, do not call repulsive or disgusting. This all-inclusiveness that Jesus has, who loved to eat, remember he loved to eat with tax collectors, with sinners, with the outsiders looking in, that's who Jesus had a heart for. It's quickly been lost by the circumcision party, right? It's, it's been restricted once again to only those who are on the inside. And I think it's worthy of the, the self-reflection of when are we guilty of maybe doing the same thing. I would argue that it's perhaps how we engage with other denominations. Now, granted, we are the best. That said, how do we engage with other denominations? Especially, how do we engage with other denominations as we work collaboratively in our community? How do we do that? I was recently at a conference in Orlando called Serve the City. It was a gathering of, I believe, about 60 different nonprofits that were Christian-based, as well as congregations and, and denominations throughout our town. And I was struck by one thing that one of the pastors who stood up and spoke said. And he said this, when Jesus comes back, he is coming back to get married, right? When he, he returns, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna rise together, meet him, and, and enjoy the eternity of the new kingdom of God. And when he comes back, he is not coming back to marry a harem. Not this church and that 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 church. Not a harem. A bride. One church. That when he gathers us all together, there's not going to be the Lutheran room, the Episcopal room, the Catholic room, the Baptist room way back in the far corner. One. One bride. One church. Unified. And I think once, once we get there, it's, it's going to be this moment where no matter what denomination you're from, you're going to go there and you're going to go, oh, that's, that's what he meant. That's how we were supposed to do that. And that's how we get to do it now. And so Peter begins to explain to them in order. And he explains what happened in chapter 9 and chapter 10. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like this great sheet descending, being held by the four corners. That's whenever you hear four corners, think about the world, the four corners of the earth. For those flat earthers out there, 
for the round earthers, it's really all of the earth. For all people, now God is about to declare something clean or unclean. And there were all kinds of animals, animals of prey, reptiles, birds of flight, all kinds of things, probably bacon. Amazing. Like Peter's eyes just like going. <sighs> and a voice answered the second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter, nothing on this plate is profane. I've declared it clean. I have declared it clean. How many of us struggle with feeling like we are defiled, like we are unclean, like we are common? Because of things that you've done, because of things that have been done to you, the enemy loves to just whisper in your ear, you are common, you are valueless, you are worthless, you are sinful, you are broken. God could never love someone like you. But he is a liar. And God has declared you clean. He has declared you set apart. In your baptism, he declared you to be his son or daughter. And what he has declared to be clean, who are we to say otherwise? God has said, today, you are clean. You are worthy. You have meaning and purpose and value. Who are you to say otherwise? And the Spirit told him to go up with them, making no distinction. The six brothers accompanied him, and they entered into the man's house. Six people going with him is kind of interesting because in a Jewish court of law, it takes three witnesses to make something valid. Three. If three people had testified to the same thing, then it happened. Peter has six, twice as many as the legal limit. And he goes in and he makes this cultural shift to make no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And again, something Jesus was comfortable doing, entering the house of someone deemed unclean, the early church had somehow quickly lost this. And I wonder, kind of how would the outside world view us today? If you're there on the outside looking in, looking for the answers to life, to meaning, to purpose, to salvation, would they see us reaching out to them? And my fear is that if they peer in long enough, they stop seeing this as the source for their life, the answer to their questions, and they turn around and look for it someplace else. As we think about the topic of distinction today, making distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, it, it, just, uh, it just naturally clicked in my head today that, that we make a lot of distinctions in worship style today. Right? I had a really, really unique experience this weekend. It's ongoing for me in that uh, I, get, I get to preach a couple of different sermons in four different, totally different worship environments. I started off with the 8 o'clock crowd in the sanctuary, and Eric and his crew just did an amazing job with music and instruments and, and, and choirs, and it was just gorgeously beautiful. And then I came into Generations, which is a lot of young preschool, early grade school uh, families, and it's like preaching into a hurricane. <laughs> but there's joy, and there's life, and there's vibrancy in it. And then I get to come to Fuel and be surrounded by all of you and, and to celebrate with an incredible worship band that leads us through songs that are deep and meaningful and powerful. And then on Monday night, I get to go into the small little intimate environment in the chapel and share Monday night service 
with a small number of people who are just intimately gathered together. And I love that. I love that we have so much diversity in our worship styles, but not everybody does. Some make distinctions. I received an invitation this past week to attend a conference. It was an email invitation to attend this conference, and this conference is for a very, very uh, traditional conservative component of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And the person extending the invitation wrote something like this. I'm going to paraphrase it in my language. But he said, we're really two different churches walking together, maybe walking apart within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We've got, we've got the... Uh, We've got people who worship contemporary style and people who worship in traditional styles. And he said, I recently taken a road trip, and on that road trip it was over a Sunday morning, and I realized I'd need to visit an LCMS congregation on my, on my trip. And so I looked ahead, and I was going to be in this particular town. It was about 11,000 people, small town, but there were two LCMS congregations. So I looked them both up to kind of get a, an idea for who they were online. The first church I looked up was, was very vibrant. They had, a, they had a, a traditional service at 8. They had a blended service at 9.30. They had a contemporary service at 11. And my first thought was, not that church. And you can read in between the lines, and he was thinking, that church, even though it does have a traditional service, I'm going to go to the church that only does traditional services because probably somehow the cancer of contemporary worship will have infected its tendrils into the traditional service and it won't be pure. And I thought instantly, that's not a conference I want to go to. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a, con of, of, of a conference, of a church body that says, let's celebrate doing different things well. Because they engage and connect with people in different ways, in meaningful ways. That for some, a contemporary service is, is real and authentic and energetic and powerful and vibrant. And for some, a traditional service is set apart, unique, sacred, and special. They both have their place. There's not just one fit for everyone. And Jesus would say, don't make distinctions. But instead, let repentance lead to life. This is the cool thing. This is where, where the resurrection changes everything. The Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentiles and changes their existence. Repentance leads to life. They began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on the disciples in the beginning. This Pentecost happens again for the Gentiles. The light goes on. This new resurrection life is meaningful in their lives, and the joy of their faith floods into their hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who accomplishes this. And I remember the work of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompted Peter to remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, that he is baptized once with water and the Spirit in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we remember that baptism each and every time we taste, touch, smell, drink, experience water, that the Holy Spirit in that moment is awakening our hearts to the power of life in Christ. And when he heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God. I think that's incredible. Because they didn't hear Peter's argument and say, agree to disagree. They didn't hear what he had to say and say, 
okay, you got me, but I'm going to think about this and get back to you. They fell silent, and then when their silence was broken, it was broken with praise to God. They were in alignment. They were together in their mission, at least in that short moment of time. It's been my prayer as we've, as a staff and, and some, some members of our congregation, been working together prayerfully to discern God's direction for us in the future, where we are going from a strategic standpoint with mission and vision, values and strategies and measures, how all of those pieces come together. Uh, I'm really excited to share it with you. We're going to roll it out this fall, but, but the, the force that we're going to be driving during this summer is bringing all of our staff, which is incredible and diverse, into alignment with this mission, because God does powerful things when his people are aligned with his mission. And in this moment, they were. They were perfectly aligned. They were perfectly convinced, and they celebrated and praised God. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fall onto us, that you would change everything that you would move us to live lives of repentance, to see where we've fallen short, to see where we've made distinctions and drawn lines. God, that you would erase those lines in our lives, that you would enable us to make no distinction between those who deserve your gospel and those who don't. There are no people that you would exclude from hearing your gospel and receiving it, believing it. Father, let your word flood our lives. Let it flood and overpour out of us that it would impact every place we go this week. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and transforming name. Amen.